Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Some Assembly Required, Chapter 6. As has been clear from recent Inappropriate Conversations episodes, I'm spending the first part of the year, nearly half the year in fact, going chapter by chapter through a novella that I wrote in 1994 called Some Assembly Required, A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. It was the second long-form writing experiment I had done as a Lenten writing experiment, sort of instead of giving up something for Lent, forcing myself to drill in to a writing exercise. In this case, writing as many as 40 different writing styles, with not necessarily a key key set of characters who develop along the way, or even a linear plot of sorts. It's a surrealist novella, for want of a better word, and this week's episode is Chapter 6. Before I get there, though, at some point during this episode, I will interrupt probably the break between the end of the chapter and the Different Drummer segment with a promo, as I always do on Inappropriate Conversation shows. Gives me an opportunity to take a breath, to shift gears, change topics, or just make a more natural transition from the end of something that is being read because it was previously written, and something slightly more extemporaneous like a Different Drummer segment. My plan is to once again highlight a relatively new podcast, a a resurgent podcast, called This Week in Gay. The reason I've been promoting it so much here lately is that I've recently appeared on an episode of the show. If you were to go to This Week in Gay's website, for me that's thisweekingay.podbean.com, or just find it on podcatchers like iTunes or elsewhere, the same kind of places you would find Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast or Walk the Earth as a podcast. For me, those two share the RSS feed at inappropriateconversations.org. But for This Week in Gay... Um, All of the episodes begin with two because it's uh, bringing back a new version of the show, starting with the uh, introductory 2.0 episode, for the sake of argument. I appear as IC underscore Greg with Matt Burlingame from the Chubbs Gone Wild podcast and the host George in Atlanta on a panel chat on LGBT news, episode 2.7. It was posted April 13th, 2020. Again, sometimes the podcasts that I share promotions for are simply shows that I'm enjoying listening to and I want to continue to enjoy listening to them. Sometimes there's more of a method to the madness. This one, the cross-promotion, is very timely. Very timely compared to the chapter of the short story I'm about to share. Some of the material can be a bit dated. It obviously was written more than 20 years ago, so that kind of goes without saying, but Um, And I don't usually look at current events, and even in places where I've looked at this novella and found elements of relatively current events at the time, some of them hold up, either because they're a little more timeless than that as topics, or there's a time capsule element. But in this one, the current events being sports are definitely dated. I've kept it in, every word as written, uh, just because, again, I'm, I'm sharing something that I previously finished. It's a completed work. So here is Chapter 6 of Some Assembly Required, A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. Dear Tiffany, I got your letter last week. I haven't written back to you yet because something has disturbed me. 
More on that later. First, I have agreed to audit a class for one of my professors this summer. He wanted me for all of summer semester, but I negotiated out of half. Therefore, I probably won't see you until June. Basically, it's a good deal for me. Working with this guy will help me decide whether to pursue a master's degree. Second, my mother ran into your mother in the video store last week. It's possible mom offended her. I don't have many details. If necessary, though, please apologize to your mother on my behalf. From what I gather, the conversation took a turn into the I-don't-know-what-those-two-are-up-to zone. Her implication that you are somehow promiscuous touched a nerve with me, anyway. Hey, before I forget, an Alfred Hitchcock revival is supposed to be coming to town just after midterms. The British have just now exported a couple of movies made for propaganda purposes during World War II. They are short subjects, combining for about an hour total, starring French actors and set in the French resistance movement. I know you like Hitch, and whatever's coming here will surely go to Palo Alto, or perhaps San Francisco. To answer your question, yes, I agree that the political correctness rules of dating are inane. But no, I don't think it's a big deal. If anything, it may increase sexual activity rather than reducing it. Remember that conversation we had last summer about the give the dog a bone technique? Your phrase, not mine. Well, isn't that pretty close to the ask-first mentality of the PC movement? Before you answer that, let me confess that I tried it and it worked. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was acting out a script you had written with just a little bit of may I do this here and some it would be the ultimate if there sprinkled liberally with the I'm embarrassed to ask you and a touch of I don't want to lose your respect and bingo, we respected each other in the shower the next morning too. Don't feel bad about it. She's a nice girl and I plan to see her again. I didn't lie to her either. I just caged the truth handily within your scheme. You know, someday the women's Gestapo is going to haul you off kicking and screaming for teaching me that trick. They'll strap you down and torture you until you confess the secrets you divulged to the enemy. That's me, the enemy. Joking aside, something you mentioned in your letter has stuck with me in a disturbing way, specifically referring to being bored with alcohol and considering, quote, exploring new means of intellectual exploration. I don't know how to word this. At the same time, I hope that I am jumping to a false conclusion, and yet feeling apologetic if I do. To make things worse, I'm not Nancy Reagan, nor would I pretend to be. Nor could I convince you that I was the first lady from hell if I tried, I hope. For the sake of argument, then, let's presume that you are considering experimenting with drugs. This might be fun anyway, even if I'm wrong. We should begin by specifying our terms experimenting with drugs as a statement of fact could mean nothing more than switching from one a day to one a day plus iron it could mean trying some kids flintstone vitamins it could mean taking a low maintenance dose of antihistamine to stave off allergies at the start of hay fever season these experiments don't concern me take the iron women need iron anyway children's vitamins taken in moderation are harmless I don't think you have any allergy problems. Nevertheless, I think what we are talking about here are mind-altering drugs. I've always hated that expression, and here I am putting it to use. Oh well, let's be sure we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about pot, lewds, mushrooms, cocaine, the whole family of narcotics. 
You know me well enough to know that I'm not likely to spout off for page after page about the dangers of addiction and the health risks associated with the synthesis of products outside the field of pharmacology. I shouldn't have to tell you anyway, Tiff. The same girl who washed her fruit in the cafeteria water fountain before eating anything off the lunch line surely understands the dangers posed by pesticides and poor health standards of crop producers. And yet, can it be true that the same Tiffany who was then so careful would now consider ingesting something that was intentionally cut with God knows what? I find that hard to believe. I love you so much that I find that hard to believe. This may be an excellent time to emphasize this point. While I branch between the things I'm not going to say about you and the things I most definitely will, let me remind you where I'm coming from. I'm not your father. I don't want to be your father. No insult to Virgil. I just never felt like a parent to you, and I hope I don't come off that way now. No, I love you differently than that. I've always loved you like you were one of my sisters. You know that. I believe you when you tell me that I'm the brother you never had. Well, sis, my advice to you is use your brain. If I were Nancy Reagan, I'd be saying something like, use your brain now because if you poison your mind with drugs, your brain may not work so well ever again. I'm not, I'm not just saying no to an intellectual discourse about the subject like she would. What I am saying comes in two parts. First, why does experimentation with drugs seem advantageous? Second, is there a better way to reach the same goal? There's a guy in my critical essay class who is big time into rap music. Every now and then, he wears this shirt that has a black guy on the front who is smoking a joint. His hair is an afro made out entirely of marijuana leaves. The back of the shirt also is adorned with leaf imagery, and it says something on it about exploring a brand new realm or venture into the next realm or something like that. I suppose it's a popular idea. The notion that mind-altering drugs are actually consciousness-expanding drugs. Along these lines, I guess it might be tempting to use synthetic assistance in exploring the depths of the subconscious. For the user, there is, I would say, an illusion that some great truths are being revealed. I sound skeptical of this alleged advantage because I am. Before I detail my reasons for doubting this psychedelic roadmap to a whole new world... I want to pause and emphasize that we are searching here for advantages, plural, to drug usage. I defy anyone to come up with another edge. These, these kinds of drugs will not aid your physical being. Drugs won't lengthen your life. They're an inefficient method of weight loss. You can accomplish that much more cheaply with guar gum derivatives. Spiritually? Well, despite our differences of opinion there, we both know what your Catholic family would say. No, the only substantial argument in favor of drug experimentation is psychological. I may not persuade you initially on this matter. That's because I openly question how much of a trip, so to speak, is the product of the mind and how much is the product of the hallucinogen. Rather than opening up a person's perception, it is quite likely that the drugs cloud our understanding so fully that a mirage of perception is instead created and mistaken for a true vision. If I grant, though, that drugs do somehow bridge a person into a whole new realm of consciousness, then that leads to the second question. Is this the best way to accomplish such a goal? My initial reaction is to just say no, because 
No one can be sure the illusion caused by being high aren't only the byproduct of the drug alone. In this manner, taking a drug would no more change your perceptions than a carnival's funhouse mirror would suddenly make you tall and thin. My first thought is even my best thought. I guess there are two things that make using drugs a poor method of rising to a whole new realm. One is dependence, and the other is expense. Again, I'm no Nancy Reagan. I'm not talking about committing crimes to maintain an addiction. No. Say that, as a casual, once-or-twice user, you do learn something about your nature that you didn't know now. Fine. What did it cost you? Let's conservatively guess a hundred bucks. For that hundred bucks, you enter into a whole new realm. The next morning, you may recall what you observed within said realm. However, you surely won't recall how you got there. So, how do you get back to the same place to continue your studies? More drugs. Can you guarantee the same drug will take you to the same place? Of course not. In this regard, you would become dependent upon the drug to further your consciousness-expanding experiment. Without it, all you've learned will be lost. At 50 bucks or 100 bucks per experiment, that is a most inefficient system. What makes the drug-enhanced approach seem even more costly and wasteful is how unnecessary it truly is. A sharp, dare I say, brilliant woman like you can get to that same place virtually for free. How? I'd recommend spending a weekend totally alone in your apartment, in a fast, with nothing but spring water to drink, and nothing to listen to except the ambient music of Brian Eno, or perhaps some Gregorian chant. Proper relaxation will clear your mind. If you then fill your time with the writings of Borges, Hesse, Joyce, Faulkner, then you will reach that other realm, or even a significantly higher one. Furthermore, you will remember exactly how you got there because you drew the map. This is a vital point. Drugs are like being blindfolded, tossed into a trunk, and driven several miles to a secret incense-burning hideout. By bringing the hallucinatory powers of your own brain to bear upon your experiment, you will be able to easily retrace your steps. Granted, books aren't as glamorous as drugs seem to be. On the other hand, they aren't consumable, and they aren't as expensive. Based on our personal experiences, neither of us has any cause to doubt the inspiring power of the written word. Remember the parallel we drew from our own experience out of the sound and the fury. And Spode, calling Shreve my husband. I'll let him alone, Shreve said. If he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts, whose business? In the South, you're ashamed of being a virgin. Boys, men, they lie about it. Because it means less to women, father said. He said it was men invented virginity and not women. Father said it's like death, only a state in which the others are left. And I said, but to believe it doesn't matter. And he said, that's what's so sad about anything, not only virginity. And I said, why couldn't it have been me and not her who was unvirgin? And he said, that's why that's sad too. Nothing is even worth the changing of it. And Shreve said, if he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts. And I said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? Did you? These are the thoughts of a character who is plunging off a bridge to his death. I used that in the class I was telling you about. By using you as an example, I got an A on the first paper we had to turn in this semester. I believe that I was only able to put together my analysis by venturing into a whole new realm of conscious thought. If I'd used drugs, though... 
I wouldn't have been able to defend my thesis during the oral part of the presentation. Did you ever notice how people who use drugs always have, I don't know, man, answers to basic questions about what they did and how they felt? Their drug-induced state was supposedly too mind-blowing to describe. Perhaps they're right. After all, the experiences has the correlative drawback of being too mind-blowing to remember. What a waste. Tiffany, if you manage to explore a frightening new level of your subconscious mind, I expect you to invite me there the next time we get together. To accomplish this, you must. Must get there without drugs because your chemicals will not help me get inside your brain even if I take the exact same chemicals. I'm asking you this as your best friend. Best friend. There I go again. Look at the length of this letter. This is going to be a scream if you weren't talking about drugs after all. Say, in your next letter, you'll have to let me know when Stanford's out for spring break. We will be out on the 11th. At first, I thought that was too early for me, but now I'm more than ready. Being this far south may explain how we're off so early. Let me know when you're free. Even if your break is after mine, I may drive up and catch you on one of the weekends. We'll laugh about this correspondence then. In the meantime, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Your friend, Scott. KNEW, KNEW FM 99. Lots to cover the next hour, so give us a call. You're listening to the only sports radio program in the country named after me. This is Sports Day Saturday, and I'm Stephen Day, in the big middle of things as usual. We'll be getting to anything and everything this morning. That includes the ongoing Big 8 tournament in Kansas City. Will it be there past 1996, I wonder? Also, prep basketball tournaments are rolling along, as is spring training for Major League Baseball. Give me a call, 460-KNEW. That's 460-5639. How about toll-free? Uh, we're still down, Steve, his engineer said. Looks like another 20 minutes. My understanding is that the toll-free calls won't be getting through until midway through the show. We apologize for this. For a nominal Southwestern Bell fee, of course, you can reach us at 918-460-KNEW. There's a question I want to pose to callers today, and we'll get there in just a moment. But first, caller, are you there? Yes. Uh, did you see the Missouri-Colorado game yesterday? You know, that is one of the integral luxuries of this job. You bet I did. It's my job. That's what I do. Do you think Missouri can still be a number one seed after that performance? I hate to say this, but I really do. You kidding me? Bear in mind that the Tigers could still win the tournament title and completely lock up the Big 8. They're going to have to play a lot better than they did against the bottom seed without its all-world player. You're right. I didn't expect Colorado to hang in at all without Donnie Boyce, much less hang in so well. So who do you like in the final? I have every confidence in the winner of the Oklahoma State-Kansas game. To me, those two teams are the best tournament teams, so to speak, in the entire league. I kind of like Nebraska. How's that? Well, if they do to Mizzou what they did to the Sooners, are you a Sooners fan? To the bone, Steve. I, I sympathize, buddy. We, we've had a tough year. But let me say this. Like it or not, demolishing OU this year is not a stunning achievement. Thanks for calling. All right, our next caller is Gary from Tulsa. Gary, how's it going, Steve? I can't complain, and I wouldn't if I could. What's going on? Who, besides Missouri, do you have slated for the top seeds in the NCAAs? I'm sticking with my guns, Gary. Missouri will stay in the Midwest, Michigan in the West, 
Arkansas in the southeast, and North Carolina in the east. Weren't you putting Duke out there last week? Well, yes and no. Last week, and in fact for the past two weeks, I've reserved that seed for the winner of the recent game between the Tar Heels and Blue Devils. I guess uh, some of my cohorts would still take Duke. They do have an advantage in the polls. Polls aren't as scientific as sports writers would have you believe. What you have to ask yourself, Gary, is whether you could see Duke above North Carolina, the team that beat them twice head-to-head. Weren't you poised to take Duke if they split the series? You bet, if only because of Carolina's other losses. In fact, I would still elevate Duke if they beat Carolina in the ACC tournament this week. So winning one out of three is better than 0 for 2? Obviously. Hey, before I let you go, we're going to be asking callers today for an opinion on the upcoming merger between the Big 8 Conference and the four Southwestern Conference schools. My understanding is that the deal would put millions of dollars into the expanded conference. Right? Then the only losers are SMU, TCU, Houston, and... and, um... Um, Rice, thanks for calling. Let's make this question a little more specific. I know you already know how the merger is going to affect football. As a matter of fact, football has been the sole focus of the discussion to date. As far as basketball goes, let's hold off on that subject because it'll be more fruitful after teams start dropping out of the tournament in the next few weeks. Instead, let's focus on something that is uniquely important to the Oklahoma schools and the new acquisitions from the Southwestern Conference. Let's focus on college baseball. How do you think this merger will affect college baseball in the new Big 8 Conference? Matt from Sand Springs, what do you think? College baseball? I, I haven't thought about it much yet. That's my point. You're not alone. I don't think many of the sports writers or any of the folks from the two conferences have given it much thought. Well, as a fan, it would be great. You know how hard it is to persuade those Texas teams to play up here? I agree, and now the Longhorns will have to play home-and-home series in Norman and Stillwater. I wanted to follow up to your reference to Donnie Boyce as an all-world player. Agree or disagree? Oh, I fully agree. It's scary to think what he might have accomplished for a team like OU. Well, that cuts both ways. Where would the Sooners be now if they had a gutty, gritty, go-to guy like Boyce? Will Boyce be back with the Buffaloes this year, or will he bolt for the NBA? You know, I haven't heard him address that issue. It's possible that he has addressed it. Tulsa is a long, long way from Boulder. And unfortunately, Boyce is such a well-kept secret that the national media hasn't been knocking on his door asking him the same questions they ask of Michigan's underclassmen. If you were his coach, what would you recommend? If I were his coach, stay, stay, stay. Okay, okay, let me rephrase that. If you weren't a greedy, self-serving coach, What would you tell this player about his chances? Well, he's got the skills, but he's got a lack of exposure and, and the benefit of extra experience if he came back, it would only improve in his senior year. You know the thing I like best about Boyce? What? I don't know whether to call it class or resiliency. Either way, Donnie Boyce isn't a complainer, and he is in a situation that would justify a lot of whining. He's not winning, but he's not whining either. Exactly. I can't help but think that he must have a strong personal dedication to the program or to his degree. Otherwise, he would have transferred. Either way, either that or Boyce sees some potential next year that the rest of us don't. Thanks for calling. Our number again, only one for a while anyway, is 460-KNEW. Next up is Ray from Salisaw. 
Steve-O! Hey, only my close personal friends get away with calling me Steve-O. I'm calling you Steve-O because I want our friendly neighborhood bet. This is that Tanya Harding thing, right? Right. Sorry, Ray, I, I didn't know you were from Salisaw. Harding is still free as a bird, Steve. I can't argue with you there. Let's bring everyone up to date. When the Olympics ended, I made the statement that the closing ceremonies wouldn't truly be over until Tanya Harding was escorted into the Portland courtroom in handcuffs. Ray called and told me that he didn't think that would happen. I wagered him that she would be on the receiving end of her right to remain silent before the weekend. You even said the warrant would be waiting for her at the airport. Well, give yourself some credit. Not only did you talk me into backing away from that claim, you ultimately shut me up completely. I accept your surrender, Steve-O. Well, now that we're on nickname basis, Ray, um, how could you be so sure that she wouldn't be arrested yet? Steve, I give grave doubt she'll ever be arrested. You think she's innocent? Hell no, no. She's as guilty as Charles Manson in a more minor way. So why? They, they can't indict her? It isn't a matter of the district attorneys can or can't do. It's a matter of will. They refuse to prosecute the hometown heroine before the Olympics, and I seriously doubt they will have the gumption to do so now. That's one heck of an accusation, Ray. The USOC and I have more than 20 million reasons to believe that the Portland legal system won't burn this witch at the stake. So you think justice would have been better served if the investigation had centered in Detroit, the actual scene of the crime, so to speak? Hypothetically speaking, yes. Why hypothetically? Well, Harding didn't actually commit her crime in Michigan. The conspiracy part was committed in Oregon. Oh, I get it. So if you're right, she's going to skate off untouched. She may even do a triple axel through the statute of limitations, Steve. So what do you think about Big 12 baseball? Nothing. I only called to gloat. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thanks for calling, Ray. You know, Ray's an honest guy. The world needs a few more straight shooters like you, buddy. Para Double Diddle. We're back. The number to call if you want to chime in is 460-KNEW. That's 4605639. Janice from Tulsa. It's your turn. I cannot believe you guys are still emphasizing the legal aspects of this Tanya Harding thing. I don't follow you, especially now that the Olympic competition is over. What else is left? My point is that she would have been she should have been dropped from the team regardless of what the courts had to say. Is this the old no constitutional right to skate argument? Only in part, the other athlete won on appeal because his drug test was actually negative. It is a fact in his case that he was unfairly removed from the team. For Harding, her obvious and fully confessed obstruction of justice was enough to violate the standards of sportsmanship to which she had vowed. While I may agree with you, Ray from Salisaw is right. 20 million bucks will pay for a heck of a lot of ice skates and hockey sticks. It's a lot of money to gamble with after the judges in Portland had fully presented their point of view. I didn't call to recommend the removal of judges from the bench. In this case, though, it would be worth discussing at another time. Oh, we could talk about it now if you want to, Janice. Not really necessary. All I'd say is that part of this ugly puzzle is that decisions about qualifications and eligibility in sports have always belonged to the referees and officials, not lawyers and judges. Well, are you familiar with the Jerry Tarkanian versus the NCAA battles? Vaguely, 
But, well, with Tark, his... Steve, I hate to interrupt you, but it's like comparing apples to oranges. UNLV's coach was an employee engaged in a labor dispute. Tanya Harding is an amateur athlete. Well, so where does that take us? It's as simple as this. Sports decisions should be made by sports organizations. Why let judges and the courts get dragged into this? It makes me question their competency. Do you think she will be arrested? Either that or sued. If Ray is right, that doesn't stop the USOC or even Nancy Kerrigan from taking civil steps to recover damages from her. That's a good point. That's one that even Ray and I hadn't considered. So what do you think about the inevitable changes in Big 8 baseball? I'm not worried about it. The Cowboys always go down there and play a couple of Texas teams in the early part of the season anyway. It's worked in the past. I'm sure it'll work in the future. Big Pokes fan? Orange power all the way. So you weren't worried that these four new, highly talented teams might interrupt Oklahoma State's unprecedented run of championships? Well, I guess I hadn't thought that far ahead. It's going to be very, very interesting. I thought Kansas made it too interesting last year. Uh, But thanks for calling, Janice. Bill from Sand Springs, it's your turn. Steve? Yes, you are on the air. Steve? Uh, It sounds to me like you aren't looking much past conference play to measure all the impact of these new teams on Big 8 baseball. How do you mean? Look, last year the College World Series was slated with half the teams from this new conference. OSU and KU made it. Texas and Texas A&M made it. That is half the entire World Series from a single conference. Three of the four coming from a single division in that new conference. Wow, you've got me there. I wasn't looking into the prospect of the NCAA tournament in general, much less the CWS. Didn't three regionals come from this new conference too? Stillwater, Austin, and College Station. How often will the NCAA set up that many regionals from the same conference? Well, the committee has never hesitated before to give Pac-10 teams that kind of consideration. True, but that has a lot to do with how weak the West overall tends to be. Right, and here we also have Wichita, Uh, Arkansas, Louisiana State, it's a lot of competition for four regional sites at the moment. I'll tell you what, if you add Wichita State to the new Big 8 Conference, then you could shorten the College World Series to four teams. Whoever wins the Big 8 tourney deserves an automatic trip to Omaha. Bill, that's the best answer I've heard to our question of the day. But like always, a good answer always raises more good questions. Namely, Will this new Big 8 have trouble getting fair representation in baseball's field of 48? Thanks for your call. Next up, Marcus from Tulsa. Hello, Steve. What's on your mind this morning? I wanted to get back to basketball. I think I can explain to Gary and some of your other callers why Missouri will be a top seed next week in the NCAAs. Why? Because we already know they will win the Big 8 tourney Sunday. We don't need to wait for the scores to roll in. What makes you so sure? It's hard to beat even one team three times in a row. Missouri's going to have to accomplish that very task three times in Kansas City. I think we know that Missouri, all Missouri has to do is show up. Uh Uh-oh, it's not. It can't be. It's Conspiracy Theory Saturday. I'm not offering you any conspiracy theories. Aren't you implying that the games are fixed? Perhaps, but to offer a conspiracy theory... I need to have some concept of how they're fixed. I don't know. What I do know is that something up there smells very fishy. 
Well, I'll grant you that I've been uncomfortable with a couple of Missouri wins, most notably the intentional foul gift from the gods against Nebraska last week. Well, how about the game in Stillwater? Brooks Thompson gets fouled intentionally on a breakaway, then kicked. He issues a warning to the cheap shot artist who responds, and another Missouri player jumps in and pushes Thompson out of the way with closed fists, if you know what I mean, pushes him out of the way with some closed fists. I'll grant you that one, too. It's hard to fathom a technical foul going solely against the Cowboys there. We haven't even addressed Johnny Orr's concerns. Apparently, the Tigers' two games against Iowa State were just as bad or worse. I'm not sure I see a pattern here to this suspect officiating. I can't say I've seen enough to single out one guy or one team of officials. If that foul call against Colorado 45 feet away from the basket in a loose ball situation with less than a second to play can't convince you, then nothing can, Steve. I thought it was a horrible call. I thought it was a wonderful gift. And this tournament's not over yet. Look for Missouri's Christmas in Kansas City to continue for another couple of days. In basketball, anything can happen. If Missouri starts losing to Nebraska, don't be surprised if a Big 8 official in the stands pulls out a high-powered rifle and shoots Eric Piatkowski in the head. And you say, you're not a conspiracy theorist. So what happens to Missouri in the NCAA tournament? Another quick exit, of course. Just like years past, Missouri will get unbiased officiating for the first time in months, and they won't be able to limp without their crutch. Fascinating theory, but you know, no 16 seed has ever beaten a top seed. True, true, and that fact may not change, but mark my words, Missouri players, you'd better steal all the stationery and ashtrays you want out of that Wichita hotel room, because you're not moving to the next hotel in Dallas. Gotcha. Thanks, Marcus. We'll... Take a break. Be back in a minute. Up next, we'll turn our attention to spring training. What's that playing? Justin asked Kelly, returning to their desks with two cups of coffee. Listen to this, Kelly answered, turning his radio up to the limit allowed by office etiquette. I know that song. That's Elvis Costello's, right? It's shipbuilding, Kelly said. Didn't your band do this one? Well, until we lost our sax player. This is the new Tasman Archer. It's half Elvis Costello songs and half live cuts from the concert supporting her first album. What other songs did she use? Justin asked. They didn't say, Kelly answered, gesturing toward the radio. We used to do a few, Justin said. Uh, Girls Talk, Miracle Man, Accidents Will Happen. Uh, We still perform Man at a Time. That's all pretty commercial, though. More so than shipbuilding, anyway. Well, we also did Big Sister's Clothes. Anyway, which songs would work for you from Elvis Costello if if you had a band? I don't know, Kelly said, considering the question. Maybe Less Than Zero and Human Hands uh, and Two Little Hitlers. That one's already been remade by Todd Rundgren. Please! No, it's true. You need to have a country song, too. Um, A Good Year? Justin asked. No, I'd go with an original, like Different Finger. And a crooner? Shipbuilding. That's already been taken by Tasman. Oh, well, Kelly said, imagining album covers in his head. Then, The Long Honeymoon. What's all this about? Darren asked, turning his desk chair to face them. Karaoke? (laughs) Justin laughed. No way, Kelly said. I've never been to a karaoke machine cool enough to include Elvis Costello. They'd just as soon add the Sex Pistols, Justin quipped. Sex Pistols? Darren asked. Did your band ever play them? Kelly asked Justin. Uh, just problems, but I don't think most people even recognized it. 
If I had a band, we'd play the Sex Pistols, Kelly said. We'd have to find a spot for no feelings, bodies, and In Christ There Is No East or West. The Pistols never did a version of In Christ There Is No East or West, Dustin replied. No, but wouldn't they do a great one? Do they make karaoke for groups like the Sex Pistols? Darren asked. I doubt it, Justin said. Not even God Save the Queen, Kelly added. Thank you. Thank you for shopping at Downtown Parks Mall. We have made every effort to improve your shopping experience so you will enjoy your time spent here. Please let us know what you think of the remodeling in the common area to provide food court seating. Have you ever been to the new food court before? Yes or no? Were you already aware of remodeled seating? Yes or no? Did seating convince you to eat while shopping? Yes or no? Do you plan to return to the food court again? Yes or no? Please rate one for poor to five for excellent. Cleanliness. Table capacity. Accessibility. Restrooms. Which restaurant did you patronize? Please rate your food purchase one to five. Please provide comments. No postage necessary if mailed in the U.S. Downtown Parks Mall, P.O. Box 23304, Lincoln, Nebraska, serial number 0013244. I'm leaving all of this blank because I'm a mall employee and I might bias the survey. My problem is with the restaurants. We have seven restaurants, some new, some old, yet none of these restaurants are close to potential. This is important to me because I eat in the mall at least three times a week. And yet, despite such patronage, it seems impossible for me to get what I want. Orange Julius has the rights to hot dogs, so A&W, home of the world's best foot-long chili dog, can't serve their specialty. So A&W used their rights to burgers to prevent Taco Tico from serving their best menu item, the Taco Burger. Now, A&W doesn't serve taco burgers any more than OJ serves foot-long chili dogs. So what are they do- why are they doing this to each other? The end result is that I can't get my favorite food from any of these places. And as a result, it is rare these days for me to eat at any of them. Now, if each restaurant served its full menu, then each would see me almost weekly. Now, the thought of this, all this power politics turns my stomach at the thought of eating at any of them, especially when there's a Wendy's across the street. Welcome to This Week in Gay. What is This Week in Gay, you say? Well, This Week in Gay was a podcast hosted by Anthony Anselmo that featured a cast of rotating participants. Each week, the participants would discuss major news items impacting the LGBT community. But after a few years, Anthony was ready to move on to some other priorities in his life. Since then, many of the participants and listeners have longed for the show's return. So we're happy to bring you This Week in Gay 2.0. When it comes to talk about the Big 12 Conference, or the Big 8 Conference, as it was back then, 
My thoughts always go to the University of Nebraska. I would consider myself a fan of the conference in general, and Oklahoma State University in particular, but truthfully, especially when it comes to football, my favorite was always Nebraska. In uh, September of 2012, I released uh, Inappropriate Conversations 99, Drama Without a Script. And in that podcast, it was talk about what it means to be a sports fan. And I referred to a University of Oklahoma running back for this perspective on the concept of drama without a script. But the different drummer was a Nebraska football coach, Tom Osborne. And as I'm drawn to thinking about all the sports talk in Chapter 6 of Some Assembly Required, and especially the sports talk that is looking backward in time to that moment in time where the Big 8 Conference was about to transform itself into the Big 12 Conference, and maybe... At that point, the naming convention hadn't been nailed down fully and completely yet. I've got to believe as an author, if I was 100% sure that this new thing was going to be named Big 12, I would have had my sports talk radio host bash the concept mercilessly, or at least take a caller who might do the same thing. Now, when I look back at the Big 8 as it was, especially this period in time, 1994, for example, as I'm writing this particular novella, It was the springtime. It was Lent. It was the time of year where Christians are observing certain disciplines in the build-up to Palm Sunday and Easter. And at that point in time, the 1994 football season had not occurred. Therefore, at the point in time that this particular novella was written, I would have had probably little to no idea who my different drummer for this episode is. My different drummer is Nebraska quarterback Brooke Beringer. I would be deeply saddened, but not totally surprised if there were people who did not connect the dots between Brooke Beringer being a Nebraska quarterback. Because when you think about the great quarterbacks in Nebraska history, first names to mind could be Turner Gill, if you're as old as I am, could be uh, Tommy Frazier. But it's probably somewhere within those those two guardrails that whoever you're thinking of, uh, at least for Nebraska football greatness, is going to look a little bit like that. People like, you know, uh, Eric Crouch, for example, playing a similar style of football. Berenger was a different animal altogether. He was essentially a potential drop-back professional-style quarterback playing on a team that was built around the idea of running the football and kind of passing when they had to. But something happened in 1994 to Nebraska football that forced the issue. Tommy Frazier went down with an injury an injury that was not uh, instantaneously obvious. It wasn't uh, he took a very hard tackle and did some sort of ligament damage. It was more feeling some numbness and some loss of functionality in his leg and several tests needing to be run to determine that he had a blood clot and the blood clot was causing issues that was going to require a bypass. And essentially, during that period of time of diagnosing exactly, exactly what his problem is and then estimating what would need to happen from surgery and recovery, it became obvious that the backup the understudy, was going to have to take on the leading role for the balance of the season. I'm naming Beringer as a different drummer because, in many ways, if I'm going to refer to a basketball player like Donnie Boyce from the University of Colorado flying under the radar and being a much bigger talent than people realized at the time, the same thing can probably be said about Beringer. If you look at his stats, as a freshman in 1992, he appeared in five games only through two passes completed none of them. As a sophomore in 1993, he appeared in 10 games, all kind of in that backup, mop-up role, because Nebraska was the kind of football team, especially in the Tom Osborne era, 
that would build up big leads and need to put in the reserves. In those 10 games, he completed 17 of 27 passes for two touchdowns, one interception. A quarterback rating of 149.1, but a quarterback rating where those 222 yards weren't terribly meaningful to the end results. It was 1994, where he played in all 12 games, the first couple in a backup role, and then suddenly thrust into the starting role. In that season, he also had a 149.5 quarterback rating, but this time, 94 completions out of 151 attempts, a 62.3% completion rate with almost 1,300 yards, 10 touchdowns, 5 interceptions, and in backup work his senior year, kind of completing the bell curve, so to speak, uh, he had similar numbers in terms of not a ton of completions, a 51% completion rate. His overall stats put him with a quarterback rating of 135.6, 12 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, 1,769 yards, and a lot of interest from the NFL. There's a couple things about Berenger that I want to call out, things that make him a different drummer. And the easy thing for me to say would be that I would name him a different drummer because of his team focus and because of his high moral character, because of his Christian values. I could name all those sort of things. But the main thing I want to talk about is his sacrifice intended and sacrifice unintended. Intentionally, Berenger came back for his senior year. After helping Tom Osborne win his first national championship as a coach at the end of the 1994 season, showing up in the second quarter when Nebraska was not playing well, and getting them right back into the game that they ultimately won when Tommy Frazier was reinserted as a starter, Berger from the quarterback position had as much to do with that national championship win as anybody on the field. Because by the time Frazier was reinserted, he was almost in some ways a de facto decoy. Nebraska won that game in the fourth quarter with touchdowns by running the fullback right up the middle. The passing that Frazier was ineffective at in the first quarter and that Beringer was so effective at in the second quarter was a non-factor because Nebraska had worn Miami Hurricanes down. When you watch the game again, as I've recently done to prepare for this different drummer segment, one of the things that kind of stands out is how much energy the Miami Hurricanes defense was spending in things like post-tackle celebrations, and trash talk. It made them, in the first quarter, the first part of the second quarter, seem kind of invincible. It was intended to intimidate, and intimidate it did. But, all the same, all of that energy, wasted energy, in retrospect, would come back to haunt them, as Beringer's ability to make it a game and to keep things competitive forced Miami's defense to maintain a complete coverage on the field. They weren't just defending the run. They weren't just defending the option. They were having to defend the pass at the same time. And you're talking about a wonderful Miami defense. Hall of Fame type players at the college level like Warren Sapp, both college and pro like linebacker Ray Lewis, ultimately at the end of the game just ran out of gas. And without Beringer, most people believe Nebraska may not have won that national championship. They would have lost that championship game and therefore been unable to get Osborne off the schneid in terms of finally winning his own national championship as a head coach, despite being the leader of the team for 20 years prior to that point. Osborne, as I mentioned probably in that different drummer segment years and years ago, was developing a reputation as somebody who couldn't win the big game. And in step Berenger, probably the most unlikely of all quarterbacks to lead the way. Now, I don't want to give too much credit there. Early wins in the season were, were generated by Tommy Frazier. 
Frazier's presence on the roster certainly made a difference to the team. In one of the games, when Berenger was coming back from a collapsed lung injury, the third-string quarterback, Tuman came in to help cover some quarters, use up some middle relief kind of innings. But even in that game, injury and all, Berenger came in in the fourth quarter to seal the victory. He played hurt. He played without complaining. He played as a backup. He stepped into the starting role. And he graciously, or at least as graciously as you could expect, accepted the fact that when Tommy Frazier was healthy enough to play in the bowl game, that the starter would return to the starting position. And when the open competition for starting quarterback was held in the offseason going into Beringer's senior year, Beringer also was, again, as reasonably a good sport as could be expected in just getting edged out, maybe by the slightest of margins, for the starting job, with Tommy Frazier being restored to that position for the next school year, another undefeated national championship-winning campaign. But it's not just the sacrifice of being willing to step back and be a team player first and foremost, and allowing, or perhaps even enabling and encouraging, other leaders to lead. Berger also, in an unfortunate accident, faced the ultimate sacrifice and was never actually able to enter the National Football League. Wikipedia says this about Brooke Warren Beringer. He was an American quarterback for the University of Nebraska football team in the mid-1990s. He came to Nebraska from Goodland, Kansas, and played backup role to Tommy Frazier. He was best known for replacing the injured Frazier during the 1994 season and leading the Cornhuskers to seven consecutive wins and to the Orange Bowl National Championship game against the University of Miami Hurricanes. Beringer died in a plane crash just two days before the 1996 NFL draft. He was a multi-sport player through his childhood. Um, When he was seven years old, his father died from cancer. He lived with his mother and two sisters, having moved from Scotts Bluff, Nebraska to Goodland, Kansas. Berenger is always going to be remembered as one of the greatest players in Nebraska history, despite only playing for maybe a third or a half at the most of his available playing time. Even in that storied 1994 season, He played in 12 games. He was the starter for something like seven of them. So definitely a bring-on-the-understudy type of situation. When I was living in the area, in the state of Kansas, for more than just a few years, was able to visit Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska, a couple of times. Once in college, and once a couple of years after graduating from college. But all of these experiences were prior to this 1994 season. The last time I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, was to watch a college football game between Nebraska and Oklahoma State, where the visiting Oklahoma State Cowboys were bringing probably the greatest running back I've ever seen in person in my lifetime, not wearing the big red of Nebraska. It was Barry Sanders from Oklahoma State University in the midst of his Heisman Trophy campaign that year. In typical Oklahoma State-Nebraska games, the Oklahoma State Cowboys were not scoring more than two, three touchdowns in a game. And you kind of thought that in that period of time when Barry Sanders played, in that late 80s, early 90s period, that if the defense could just hold up and, and Oklahoma State somehow scored 21 points, that might be enough to win, a game game like 21 to 20. The first time I saw a game played in um, Nebraska was also an Oklahoma State game. And in that one, Oklahoma State held Nebraska pretty much scoreless for three quarters. Nebraska didn't score a touchdown until partway through the fourth quarter, but At the end of the day, it was still a 17-3 win for Nebraska. Uh, Barry Sanders helped the Cowboys put up 42 points and a 63-42 loss 
at Nebraska. One thing I've never seen, though, having not been back to the stadium since, I'm going to guess, 2006? Yeah, 2006. Wikipedia says this. The trophy case dedicated to Berger's memory can be found in the lobby of Goodland High School's Max Jones Fieldhouse, and in 2006, the University of Nebraska erected a life-size bronze statue of Beringer being depicted as being coached by Tom Osborne. Wikipedia has an image of this, and to me, it's probably the image of the two people from Nebraska football history that I will always think of first and foremost when it comes to things like sportsmanship and perseverance, uh, things like putting the team first. And Beringer, for all the other things that could be said about him, left that sort of indelible mark in what you might call a half-season of greatness. Country group Sawyer Brown recorded the Nebraska song in tribute to Beringer. The song was actually written before his death. It appears as track 18, the same number as Beringer's jersey, on the group's 1997 album, Six Days on the Road. Its first live performance was in the Devaney Center at the University of Nebraska campus in 1997 at the Nebraska State Fair. Most of the time when you think about the greatest players in, say, college football history, you think of statistics or even amazing, memorable plays. But for Beringer, our different drummer this week, I'll always remember him for his sportsmanship. notes for chapter six of some assembly required bon voyage a film directed by alfred hitchcock 1944 aventure mogash a film directed by alfred hitchcock 1944 borges hesse joyce references to jorge luis borges herman hesse james joyce william faulkner authors quote and spode calling shreve william faulkner the sound and the fury new york Random House, 1929, United Kingdom reprint from London, Octopus Books Limited, 1987, page 66. Shipbuilding, sung by Elvis Costello, 1983, performed by Tasman Archer, 1994. Girls Talk, sung by Elvis Costello, 1978. Miracle Man, sung by Elvis Costello, 1977. Accidents Will Happen, sung by Elvis Costello, 1979. Man Out of Time, sung by Elvis Costello, 1982. Big Sister's Clothes, sung by Elvis Costello, 1981. Less Than Zero, sung by Elvis Costello, 1977. Human Hands, sung by Elvis Costello, 1982. Two Little Hitlers, sung by Elvis Costello, 1979. A Good Year for the Roses, Sung by Jay Chestnut, performed by Elvis Costello, 1981. Different Finger, sung by Elvis Costello, 1981. The Long Honeymoon, sung by Elvis Costello, 1982. Problems, sung by Sex Pistols, 1977. Bodies, sung by Sex Pistols, 1977. In Christ There Is No East or West, Hymn by John Oxenham, Lived 1852 to 1941. God Save the Queen, Songs by Sex Pistols, 1977. Thanks for listening.
Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.